0: Welcome to New Books in World Affairs, and this is your host Christian Peterson. And today I'll be speaking with Greg Domber about his new book, Empowering Revolution, America, Poland, and the End of the Cold War, which is put out by University of North Carolina Press. Greg, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. And before we begin, I was wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit more about your background. Sure. So
1: I uh, I was born in 1974. And one of the first kind of major political memories I have is of, of watching the Berlin Wall fall with uh, Tom Brokaw uh, on, a, on a boom of some kind uh, reporting live in, in November of 1989. And um, it had an effect on me from, from early on. I'd been sort of a news junkie uh, early in life, and, and I was studying German at the time, and I became fascinated with, with trying to understand the Cold War. And really, from the beginning, I've been struck by the, the emotional outpouring that you see when those East Germans head into West Berlin. It always, it always makes me get tingles in my spine and, and sort of tear up a little bit. And so I think that's where my interest in Eastern Europe started from. In, in college, uh, I studied with a guy named Arnie Offner uh, at Lafayette College, and he brought me into the world of diplomatic history. Uh, I wrote a dissertation with him about events in Czechoslovakia in the 1960s. From there, I, I, I left and started working with the National Security Archive and the Cold War International History Project, both in Washington, D.C., and these places really shaped my, my approach to studying the world. Both of them are, are sort of document fetishist kind of places, which I definitely am, and both introduced me to this idea of critical oral history, where you study the recent past uh, and, of course, first you head to the archives, you get all the written records you can, but then you use those written records to sort of interrogate and interview and and extrapolate from what people will tell you in, in face-to-face interviews. The way the Cold War Project and the National Security Archive often did it was to bring together a group of 5, 10, 15 policymakers uh, surrounding a particular issue uh, and sit with them in a conference location somewhere uh, out in the middle of nowhere uh, and And ask them questions about their experiences, but keep them honest by having this documentary record by the side and to say you know something like today you mentioned that um, that Yerezolsky had told you um, that martial law would be coming soon, but in the written record we see it 's not mentioned until five days later. How do you see the difference here? You know you kind of keep these policymakers to um, to the real story in that way and, and keep them more honest and so yeah. With that experience, I uh, went to graduate school at George Washington, uh, learned Polish while I was there, uh, and really embraced the international history model of, um, of understanding American foreign policy. I am an Americanist, but I have a huge Eastern Europe problem. Um, and so I had to learn the language, and I, and, and I really have enjoyed most of the information which comes from those Polish archives and from non-American sources.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting topic, and I've, I've read some of those in my research at the National Security Archive. I got uh, some very valuable sources, some of those things that I, I got access to before they were published by basically badgering people yes. Yes. <laughs> at the National Security Archives to show them to me. And uh, actually, before we move ahead, I was wondering, if you just uh, explain where where you're teaching right now for the audience?
1: Sure. So um, sure. for the last eight years. I've been at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, Florida. But this beginning this fall, I'm going to be a lecturer in history at uh, California State Polytechnic University in San Luis Obispo.
0: Wow, that's a pretty big change. Uh, I love going to California, so I'm I'm, I'm happy to... I don't know if, how you want to word it. Uh, it will be nice maybe to be in California for a while. Do you, you have any it, roots there?
1: It's, um, it's, I don't have any roots there, but my wife's family is all from here. I'm actually in California today um, okay. uh, in the middle of the move. And it It fulfills a lot of uh of personal goals to um to be closer to family for sure sure and to be and to be close again to the reagan library which um, which I'm very excited about there's not uh, as many archival collections near uh, in northeast Florida as yeah. there are in in the sort of central coast of California, so I'll be down at the Reagan library a lot from now on I'm sure.
0: Fair enough, yeah. I'll be there next week. Nice. But anyways, I was wondering before we uh, go into uh, – delve into the specifics of the book, I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about what issue in particular led you to write this uh, very, very nice work about Poland. Okay. And the-
1: um, so this was – it was the early 2000s. Um, I'm living in Washington, D.C. It's the beginning of, of the George W. Bush administration, and there was this really – pervasive and intense sense of American triumphalism at that point, that America could do anything with its power that it desired to do. And I always thought that many of the, the common perceptions, uh, the popular perceptions of about the end of the Cold War really placed too much power in the hands of the Americans. And so when I started writing this book, and I think it's, it's clear from the introduction and the conclusion, I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of American triumphalism uh, and really trying to counter it. I also took part in one of those National Security Archive Cold War Project oral history conferences in Poland that focused on 1989. I was there because I was the research assistant who put together the document briefing book uh, and somebody backed out at the last minute and it was pre-9-11 so you could you know, sort of get on somebody's ticket pretty easily. And so I went to Poland and I got to meet some of the Polish politicians that I wrote about. Uh, most importantly, I got to meet John Davis who was the American charge d'affaires from 1983, uh, and then the American ambassador from 1987 to Poland. And John Davis was just absolutely fascinating to me. He's a, he's a, career, uh, a career diplomat, um, and I saw his close relationships with both folks from the communist side of the roundtable and the opposition side, as well as the church. He knew everybody. They all respected him. And it was very clear to me in, in – uh, this was the fall of 99, just as I was starting my graduate work at George Washington – that if the United States had a clear and pervasive impact on what happened in Eastern Europe, it would have been in Poland um, because it was the most sort of protracted of the uh, transformations, and that this guy John Davis could tell me a lot about what was going on. My first project in graduate school was an interview, oral history interview with him uh, that I wrote for Jim Hirshberg, who became my advisor um, and who um, many of Cold War scholars will know out there. That's how I started, um, and that's where the impetus came from, to kind of understand American influences on these events in 1989, to really look at them not from just American sources but to, to take that international history approach, which I've been learning, um, and really apply it uh, with – again, with these interviews, um, which I completed in a slower process. But, uh, but over time, I got into them as well.
0: Yeah, it's an important point. And we can go through some of the major arguments they make in the book as we go through the chapters. But sure. what's interesting about about the book that caught my attention right away is how you talk about the issue of Polish agency and the complexities of doing international history. I mean, a, a part, part of this is a reaction to American triumphalism. But I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit more about how you approach the complexities of doing international history. Okay.
1: Um, I am very much sort of process-driven and not driven by what's in the historiography or what's driven by other people's arguments. Not that I'm a clean slate, I'm aware of these things, but but I kind of take a very journalistic approach in that what I love doing is digging through archives, um, not refuting other people's arguments or putting other people's arguments together, but getting into the nitty gritty and finding those documents. And so- the writing of this book is a 14-year process of trying to get all those sources together where I feel like I have a full picture, right? So that, that begins um, actually in Poland. Um, I wanted this to be primarily based on Polish sources, and because of the nature of declassification in the United States, it was much easier to get my hands on Polish sources. The, the PCPR, which is the Polish United Workers' Party, the Communist Party in Poland, all of their records were open. Um, anything that wasn't destroyed was available, um, which is a much, much greater openness than you have from either the Reagan administration documents, the executive branch, or certainly from the, the Department of State materials at, at NARA. And so I started with Poland and was able to very methodically dig through the, the Politburo transcripts, all of the international department files I could find, everything very slowly to figure out what was the picture from the Polish side first. I also got very lucky that my advisor um and pro- and my uh, he's my advisor he's he's led me through this process in Poland Andre Pachkowski um happened to have a relationship with and run into the Minister of Foreign Affairs at the time in Poland uh, and I got special access to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs files so I was able to look at the day-to-day diplomacy from the Polish perspective uh, a record that won't be available in the United States for at least another five or ten years in that in that kind of um, full presentation, so starting with Poland, I could then come back and focus Freedom of Information Act requests for Department of State materials. This is these are skills I learned at the National Security Archive; uh, they're fantastic at it. So I did that at the Reagan Library, and I managed to get some materials uh, declassified, particularly Paula Dobriansky's files. She was one of the main NSC folks on mm-hmm. on Poland, and this was. Um, Between the writing of the dissertation and the writing of the book, a lot of the Dobryansky materials became available, so it really um, brought a lot more detail. I started there, and then as you go through the Polish record, you start interviewing some of the Poles. I recognized immediately how important all the NGOs were. These are NGOs that were sending material and monetary support to the opposition, uh, as well as humanitarian organizations, um, which I hadn't expected – I hadn't expected to to focus on humanitarian organizations, but it became very clear from the Polish sources and the early um, American sources, the government sources that I got, that this was a a huge part of the discussion. And so I went to Baltimore, and I talked to the Catholic Relief Services, and they opened up their materials. I, again, got really lucky um, and got access to the George Meany um, Archive, which is now at the University of Maryland, uh, and was able to look at AFL-CIO unprocessed records. These are not materials that I expected to be able to see. But if I have one piece of advice for graduate students, it's to play dumb a little bit and ask, 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 and pester, <laughs> pester, pester.
0: Pester does work. It, it, it sort of does.
1: It's it's this, it's a necessary part. I mean, I'm really kind of an archives rat in that way. I come at it and try to get all of the materials I can find. Um, another great story. So I knew the Polish-American Congress would – Played an important role lobbying, and I knew that they had um, funneled uh, some of the NAD support to the opposition in the 1980s. And so I went to their offices in DC and I asked, you know, what materials do you have? And they said, well, a lot of our stuff is in Chicago and it's been destroyed. There was a flood in the building, blah, 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 blah. But you should talk to Casimir Leonard, who was his wife, uh, Mira Leonard, ran the office in the 1980s and he was involved in the office in the 1980s as well. And Casimir Leonard, recognized the importance of the files that had been in his wife's office and kept them in his basement. He did not send them back mm-hmm. to Chicago because he didn't think they were going to take care of them. And so within a week of me being in Washington, Casimir Leonard shows up with eight boxes of material, <laughs> uh, sits down with me, tells me about where these came from, what's in them. You just never know what you're going to find. And True. for me, I, it's a constantly evolving process of what I'm going to look for, what works, what doesn't work. And in that way, it's, it's, it's more journalistic, um, I think, than, than driven by some large idea of what I'm doing. It's, it's all process for me. Unfortunately, it takes a really long time. I mean, this book, I started with that interview with, with Davis in, uh, in the fall of 99, and it was published in 2014. So I hope the next book doesn't take me 15 years. <laughs> but, um, but I think if, when I don't have that kind of time, these sources don't necessarily open up in a short period of time. So you have to be patient and you have to be pestering.
0: Yeah, you have to be proactive. That, that's good advice. Absolutely. And as far as far as what you, what you do in the book, it's, it's, there are a lot of very interesting arguments, and I'm, we're not going to get to everyone because of time constraints. But to start off with, in Chapter 1, you – you make some important arguments about how the United States government, we'll just start with this issue, responded to the issuing of martial law in Poland, that it actually caught the Reagan administration by surprise. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that. Sure. Sure.
1: Um, so there's a big controversy about the response to martial law um, because the CIA had information that martial law was coming. Right. Um uh, Marshal uh, Kulikovsky had defected. Uh, he had been providing information to NATO for a long time and to the United States in particular, and he had been on the planning board for martial law. So the United States knew that martial law was was going to be implemented or was being planned. That information, however, was held really tightly, and I'm really relying here on Doug McKechn's work. Um, I don't add much new actually in this debate. Uh, Doug McEachan has done the best work. He worked for the CIA for a long time. Um, His his book is is really the best source on it. And while the United States knew the plans and knew what the plans would look for, would look like uh, once martial law was implemented, the timing of it was never quite clear. Uh, Andrzej Paczkowski just came out with a new book called uh, Revolution and Counter-Revolution in Poland by uh, Rochester Press. And um, he goes into a lot of the planning and – that it wasn't exactly clear when it would happen until the last few months, and uh, Kulikovsky was gone by that point. Um, and so the United States didn't know the timing, um, and there was a, a, a fair amount of disagreement, which is a, which is a theme of this book, within, mm. the, within the executive branch. right? They, the, the Americans were primarily and mostly worried about a Soviet intervention in Poland. That's how they— that's what they thought was going to happen. There were plans um, with NATO on how to respond to a Soviet response. That they put together a year earlier uh, in, early, um, in early 1981, um, but it was much less clear what would happen if the Poles implemented martial law itself and the Soviets were not involved at all. Many people thought the Poles would start. They wouldn't be able to handle it themselves. They'd bring in the Soviets. And that would bring in the Soviet invasion, right? I mean, if you're looking at East European history, you're looking at 53, 56, 68, the Soviets roll in. And that's the expectation in in 1980, 81. There had been a series of of very tense periods um, in 1980 and 1981 after Solidarity uh, is created where it did look like the Soviets were going to intervene. Everyone's really focused on a Soviet intervention, and so I think the possibility of uh, a Polish implementation of martial law was was uh, underreported. We'll never we w- uh, not we'll never know. We won't know exactly what happened with those with the intelligence on martial law until the CIA declassifies everything. Uh, Mark Kramer has done some great work on it as well as McKekin, bringing out some new information um, in what four or five years ago. But basically, the my takeaway from all this is that the Americans weren't expecting the polls to implement martial law. They're expecting it to look very different. And so when it happened and it didn't explode and it was successful, uh, that really surprised the United States. I mean, this was a long burning crisis from August 1980 to December 1981. And December 1981 looked a little bit more like a lull than a peak. And so they knew martial law could be coming they didn't know when, and it didn't look like it was going to happen in early December, unless you were in that very small group of five or 10 polls that knew exactly when it was going to happen and what their exact planning for timing was. And again, if you're, if you're interested in that topic, I would talk to look at Kramer's work, McKechn's work, and, uh, Andrei Pachkoski's newest book on martial law, which is quite good.
0: Yeah. I need to check out that, that new book. I'm glad you mentioned it. And spe- speaking of the issue of surprise, the, the Reagan administration, you know, does, its penalties on Poland and by extension, the, the Soviets for, for martial law. And some people thought, you know, they should have been harsher. But what I also found interesting is how much surprise and really anger the Polish government had that the U.S. responded like it did. You have some good quotes uh, by, by, by the Polish president, uh, whose name I can never pronounce right. Jarosl- 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 I can see his face perfectly. He looks like Menachem Begin, kind of. Sure. um Sure. But yeah, I mean, he just could not understand how the Americans acted this way. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more sure. about that. I, I
1: think that's I, that's a more important finding in my book that I think I do add to the historiography at this point. The polls had been getting conflicting, uh, conflicting messages. There are business leaders in the United States who have loaned a lot of money to Poland who want the Polish economy to stabilize so that they can get their money back, right? So you have business interests saying you've got to control your situation. You've got to get the economy working again. That's what we care about. There is a Polish prime minister, uh, Majewski, who visits in November of 1981, so a month before martial law. This is after Kulikowski has has left Warsaw, and everybody knows where he is, right? They know he's defected to the West, uh, and they know that he is the leak that had been giving up their martial law information. So Jaruzelski is expecting that at this prime minister visit, when George Bush meets with him, if the Americans are worried about martial law, they will tell him that you should not impose martial law. In the briefing materials uh, that, from the Department of State, um, Bush, that is mentioned as a possibility, but Bush doesn't emphasize Polish martial law. He instead emphasizes the American line that they want to help the Poles continue to progress. They want to help them get through the situation, which means they want to continue to work on some kind of national reconciliation between this Solidarity Trade Union and the government. Right? So he's showing sort of the softer side of American, America's approach, which he does throughout his career, which I think is fascinating. We can talk about that more. And so Yarazovsky is looking for these signals that they're going to get upset. Uh, I think it, East Europeans are often confused too not East Europeans, um, autocratic societies are often confused by the multitude of voices that come out of Congress, that come out of the executive branch, that come out of business, right, that don't Mm -hmm. give clear signals and give very mixed signals. In in an autocratic society, you sort of listen to one voice and that's what matters. But because it was, excuse me, much more nuanced uh, and much less clear what the American reaction would be, Yerzelski assumed that that. There would be a slap on the wrist, um, but then they would go back to life as it had been prior to Solidarity um coming together in, in August of nineteen
0: eighty. Yeah, that's it's it's important and it's an inter- it's an interesting point. Uh it made me think a lot about uh how where this fit into international history and the reaction of a lot of different countries. And you also you explained quite a bit about the US disagreements with West Germany sure. <laughs> sure. over over how to respond. But what else, what else I think is interesting about this time period is the multi-layered approach you take to the book is how I mean, you get to the government, you get to the United States. You also bring in the role of non-governmental organizations and actually how Solidarity functioned in the wake of martial law. I was wondering if you'd say more about the view from Poland as well as the international angle of, of NGOs.
1: Sure. So sure. Um, Solidarity, the trade union itself – had been getting support from American trade unions um, from shortly after its, uh, its creation. Uh, they had asked for sort of logistical support. Um, printing materials, uh, faxes were actually very important. Uh, and the AFL-CIO was able to provide these what we might consider mundane but were very important pieces of technology if you're going to run any kind of information agency, right, which is what Solidarity was trying to do in part. There was no lethal aid, but there was money, and there was basically um, office furniture and office machines and paper um, and money that allowed Solidarity to to expand uh, during its open period, during the Polish crisis. The imposition of martial law is really actually quite successful uh, in disbanding or breaking apart the trade union itself. Right, Most of their leaders are interned. For at least a year, or about a year, um, and those people who do, uh, those well-known national figures who do go into the underground, really have to stay pretty quiet and and aren't able to take sort of public stances directly right away. But but Poland has this history and memory of resistance, be it resistance to the Russians in the seventeenth, eighteenth centuries, nineteenth centuries, or resistance to uh, the Germans during World War Two. So there's these, you know, these stories of living in the underground that everybody knew, um, and there's this kind of tradition of running an underground um, that that was existed in Poland in the 1980s. And so people began rebuilding, uh, and they quickly turned to supporters in the West to try to get the money and material they would need to run this uh, to run this underground. So by June, July of 1982. So six, seven months after the imposition of martial law, you start having the formation of uh, not only domestic cells within Poland, but international coordinating offices in Brussels, um, and you have leaders within within the organization, within the opposition in Poland, communicating with folks in the West on how they should set these things up and who should run them, uh, and so it's it's really quite quick, and I think draws on that, that memory of, of former, um, former underground activities um, that, that most Poles had heard stories of.
0: Interesting. And before I forget, I also, I also have to mention this, as, as part of, as you move through chapters one, two, and then to three, is the issue of the Reagan administration's response in terms of paying off Polish debts. Yeah. I mean a lot a lot of I mean you're you're you know this as well as anybody about the this this political discourse we have in the Republican Party about Reagan being like a cowboy who, you know, never compromised and was the strong man who, you know, basically yeah. faced down the Soviet Union. But I mean you're among many authors that point out some of the problems with that view. I was wondering if you could say a little more about that.
1: Sure. No, so sure Reagan in Poland is very pragmatic. Um I think in part because after the middle of 82 and the end of 82, it's no longer sort of a, a top-shelf issue. So by 83, 84, certainly uh, he's still in on big NSC decisions, but it's not maintaining much of his interest. Not, I don't want to say that. That's unfair. Um, it is not the highest priority of the administration. Mm-hmm. And so in the debates, um, you see less and less of the president's um, fingerprints and more and more of... The Department of State, um, particularly George Shultz, once he comes in, he becomes a very strong advocate for this pragmatic step-by-step approach, um, and I think really it's it's the transition from, from Haig to Shultz where you see the pragmatic side of Reagan, which doesn't get as much attention in the hagiography about him, um, where that takes, takes the lead uh, under Shultz. Um, He is a businessman. Schultz is a businessman. He talks about gardening in Eastern Europe, looking at this as a long-term process of change, and that's certainly the case in Poland. What's most fascinating, I think, about Reagan is early on, there's the question of whether to basically call in Polish debt. Poland had gone into $26 billion worth of debt to the West in the 1970s during the era of detente. They were no longer really able to pay it back Uh, beginning in the late 70s. They're asking for all these bridging loans. Uh, through various organizations of which the United States are part of, um, and there's this option—the tank clause—in all of these, uh, in all of these loan agreements uh, that are backed by the American government, or the ones that are backed by the American government, that they can call in the debt when they want to. So you have neocons, particularly Casper Weinberger, pushing really hard to just put Poland into bankruptcy. The effects of this are very unclear, right? There's not a lot of Polish goods out in the world that you can then seize, but it would be possible to do that legally. Um, and the concern, as expressed by the Department of State, is that if the Americans call this default, that will have a huge effect on Western Germany and West European allies who have much more money out to the poles than than the Americans do um, and would ki- kind of create a debt crisis. Um, the Department of State argues vehemently against it uh, they also have the the logical uh argument as well that that the effect of this of calling them in default is the same as everyone recognizing that they're not going to give any new loans to Poland right you can no everyone now recognizes that Poland is not a good debt risk um and so Poland's not going to have access to Western cash anytime soon so you don't need to call them in default to do that they've already done that themselves and Reagan chooses to not call Poland in default and to pay actually support legislation that pays for um, Polish debt repayment on those uh, government-backed loans and so the American government is paying for Polish debt for a number of years and Reagan supports this right this is this is a point where you see him breaking with the the very hard line um, and it's a, it's a good choice in the long run it's a good choice uh, he doesn't want to hurt his position any more than it had already been hurt with the um, with the allies, and quite frankly, I you know the the Department of State made a better argument at that point uh, in terms of what the outcomes would be, and Reagan recognized that. Right, he had he had sort of cooled down a bit um, by January, February of 1982. I mean, it's clear that he's hopping mad and really driven by his own sense of the injustice of the communist system in when he's imposing uh, sanctions against Poland and the Soviet Union. But by January, February, cooler heads um, have a chance to uh, make stronger arguments against those sort of hardline responses. Uh, And Reagan, Reagan accepts them. By 83, 84, he's completely accepted an idea of of trying to sort of create a step by step, quid pro quo, slow, gradual, We'll give you these sanctions back if you give us these, uh, these political prisoners or if you release these people. Uh, Reagan has completely accepted that by 1983 and 1984, um, and that step-by-step approach is, is sort of the quintessential pragmatic diplomacy approach that, that uh, many people wouldn't think of when they think of Reagan.
0: Yes, it's, it's true. Uh... I just when I read your book, I had this image in my mind. I just I I catch and, and flashes some of the rhetoric coming from Fox News. And every time Sean Hannity is presented with this type of information that speaks of Reagan's side, he always responds. But Reagan regretted doing that, like no matter no matter what it is, like he regretted doing that, signing that bill in 1986 for immigration reform. That was amnesty and all this stuff. And I wonder how he would respond to this. But from your I, book, I, it, I, so, it sounds like Reagan knew what he was doing and, and saw that the arguments of the State Department were better. So I think I, that's an interesting, I, interesting angle. Yeah, I
1: don't think Reagan's yeah, going to regret I, I that the communists right. <laughs> fell in Poland. I don't oh, think Hannity is yes, going to make I, that I claim. But um, I, I know I, I do think I, that that. Uh, I, I do think that when Reagan Reagan's instincts are staunchly anti-communist and sure. strongly neoconservative. Right. His instincts are to go with Weinberger and, um, and others, Gene um, Kirkpatrick, who, whoever it be. You know, His instincts are to do that, but when you sit down and you talk to him and you explain, well, there's these negative outcomes if you do it this way. Um, and particularly once you get George Shultz in there, who is someone that, that Reagan trusted much more than Haig um, and who really had the president's ear much more than Haig, um, those instincts are muted. Um, and you see – really see them muted when he decides to talk to Gorbachev. Um, yeah. And as the possibilities of a dialogue with, with the so- – a direct dialogue with the Soviets take, take over in the mid-1980s, Poland really falls to the background. And so it's not even Schultz who's running the show, but it, now it's um, the deputy assistant secretary, uh, John Whitehead, who again is another international businessman whose life is built on compromise and negotiation and pragmatism. Uh, taking over the the helm at the Department of State in terms of what Eastern Europe, right? That's his that's his main purview at that point, and so the pragmatism is there consistently. It sort of changes who's running it, but but Reagan let those things occur, right? He 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 trusted he trusted Schultz. He had a he had a good rapport with Whitehead as well, from everything on that I can tell, and so the two of them. Um, the two being Schultz and Whitehead really took this much different line than, than you generally hear about American policy towards Eastern Europe.
0: Sure. And it's it's, it's, it's an important point. And uh, one of the key sections of your book, uh, it, obviously there are many, but is this period of September 1982 to January 1985. And what stands out to me among among many things is the behavior of the polish government as, as part of this, this international history that you do you bring out how the polish government tried to deal with not only solidarity solidarity had its uprising in 1982 but also to deal with their economic problems and yeah. deal with the united states it's not like they just sat there and said oh shucks like well we're screwed or something like that they actually were very proactive in trying to deal with the issues that they obviously had to deal with. And I was going to say a bit more about the behavior of the Polish government yeah, during that yeah. time period. First of
1: all, thank First, you for liking that chapter. I think that's the chapter where nothing happens, right? Um, <laughs> that, that chapter is, uh, there was a, one review that was like, there's all this stuff about things that don't happen and that policy debates that don't lead anywhere. But if you want to understand how the US government works, you've got to look at these slow periods of time where just nothing happens, right? Like middling middling bureaucrats on the national security council are fighting back and forth about the language of something and nothing really happens um and so i i wanted i mean i i think that section of the book is most exciting in terms of how the underground is rebuilding itself and how the national endowment for democracy is beginning to to support importantly this this underground but in terms of the polish government they are they are mostly concerned with domestic affairs, which makes complete sense, right? If you, if you, like I did, read through all of the Politburo materials for the 1980s, you see how rarely international affairs comes up in these reports, right? They are thinking, how do we get our economy working again? What do we have to do with the Soviets? What's our relationship with our neighbors? Um, but mostly, how do we get our society working again? At that point, they're not willing to... Um, compromise with the opposition. They're really trying to co-opt the opposition, including Vuenza, the leader of Solidarity, the chairman of Solidarity. And they are mostly concerned with what's going on in their own country and trying to stabilize the situation. Uh, There's an acceptance within the Communist Party that until they get the economy back to where it was in 1978, 1979, people are not going to be happy with the government. Um, Yerizholtzki, I think, uh, and this is Slightly different from what a lot of other people say. I think Jaroszowski was a reformer from the beginning. He's a Polish nationalist, um, and he wants to. He honestly wants to make the country a better place, right? He's not there like many autocrats to to steal all the money he can. The level of corruption in Poland is is quite low, you know, in that kind of autocratic situation. Um, And so he and his advisors are trying to make the slow steps to rebuild their country and maintain one party rule. Clearly, um, all of that shifts. The reason the break is in 1985 is that that Gorbachev comes to power after that, and once the pressure uh, on Poland is released and they are allowed to pursue much more dynamic policies uh, than particularly Tschernyanko would have would have allowed from the Kremlin, the Poles take bolder steps after 1985, and that that creates some space for them to maneuver more domestically and internationally to try to rebuild their economy. But they're doing everything they can just to get their society working again. And, and international affairs isn't very important for them in that period. Um, it's just it's, – you have to look at these issues holistically. Um, I think too often we get stuck in our one little issue – and don't look at how it plays against everything else. So if you're looking at NSC records at the at the Reagan Library, right, you can't just look at your one week when they're talking about Poland. You've got to look at the whole list of documents and see, oh, Poland only comes up for half a meeting and actually what they're talking about for these six months is Lebanon, right? Lebanon is clearly much more important than Poland in eighty-two, eighty-three. Um and, and I think that that context is always really essential. So the context for the polls is we've got to get our society working again. And for the opposition, it's all about how do we, um, how do we make our, how do we recreate our organization? What, what direction do we take it? How are we going to be as not just a trade union, but as sort of a social movement in that period?
0: Yeah. It's also the period you talk about the salons with John Davis and his wife, uh, which was, was an interesting topic. Uh, just the the way that you know history takes place. I don't want to say in the shadows, maybe, but stuff that's not always captured in you know top uh, top down d- diplomatic accounts. Yeah,
1: John Davis John- is a phenomenal, phenomenal diplomat, uh, and he's very humble. Unfortunately, like I really would have loved it if he just came out, kind of like he's like the opposite of Zbigniew Brzezinski, right? If Brzezinski <laughs> was involved in any positive outcome, he will tell you and tell you multiple times. Um, but Davis, he was, he was quieter than that. And, but he did his job amazingly well. He and his wife, uh, and this is, this had a lot to do with his wife as well. Um, his wife, um, was bored in Poland, right? It's martial law, Poland. There's not much to do. And she has all these friends. They have friends from where they had, when they had been in Poland before. And so they start having these impromptu gatherings at their home, right? To kind of fill the time. Davis is charge. So he doesn't have to act ambassadorially. He does. He's not you know, he doesn't have all the pomp and circumstance. It's a nice house. It's got a pool. Um, it's very accessible. It's right around the corner from Yarazelski's house, which is a irony of history. But all these folks start showing up and and even folks who aren't invited say, uh, oh, I'm sure you meant to invite us. Right. They meaning the government must have intercepted the intervention, the invitation. Um, and so you get all these, you know, all the local solidarity folks show up and and it's, it's a casual event. There are political officers there, right, listening to conversations. Um, but it's really a, an intelligence gathering tool or you know, a, a way for Davis to know what the opposition's thinking and, and what's, what's happening on the street and reports of who's been interned and who hasn't been interned. And, and they create this the U.S. Embassy creates this really great information sharing network with various members of the opposition. Um, and the top ones all come to his house quite frequently now what i 've never understood is why Yealski didn 't just station the Zomo or whoever right around the residence and say no you can 't go right and keeping anybody who goes near gets arrested for twenty four hours um, mm. and they 're not allowed in i mean it's there 's something about the polish character um and yerzelski 's willingness to see the humanity of the opposition that allowed this to happen, right? It wasn't an official meeting. When there were official meetings, people were called in. Opposition members were called in and not allowed to meet. But because this was unofficial, it was just a casual dinner. It happened for some reason. It was allowed, and I'm not really sure why. Um, I am sure that, that they clearly knew what was going on. There's no way you couldn't know what was going on. But the decision was not to, not to stop it from happening. But the conversations that went on there built up so much trust uh, and so much collegiality between Davis, his staff, uh, his wife, and, and the opposition. Right? Uh, one of the things I, I, I really recognized in 1999 in that, that oral history conference uh, that started this whole thing was how much they liked this guy um, and how much of a trusted, if not advisor, a, a confidant he was. Um, and you see, you see in 1989 when we do begin to get uh, a fully declassified uh, set of cables, just how much information the, the embassy is able to pass back because of these connections, which had really been – had been worked since 1983. Um, I'm sure Francis Mian had, had good connections as well, who was the ambassador before Davis. But Davis, having been there for six, seven years um, in the 1980s, just just had an amazing information network. Um, by the events of 1989.
0: Yeah, that's true, and you definitely you definitely bring that out. And the, the issue of trust raises another important part of your book, which is the impact of the National Endowment of Democracy, or for democracy, uh, which came around in 1983, but had been in the in the air for a while. I was wondering if you'd say a bit more about National Endowment for Democracy, where it fits into your story. Um, so
1: in the Polish case, there had been American money going to the opposition in Poland uh, from August 1980 onward um, and some smaller level contacts with the free trade movement um, and others prior to that. Um, So um, the National Endowment for Democracy, when it comes into existence, really in 1984 is when they start getting congressional appropriations. What this does is vastly expands the resources that are available to The opposition, the the AFL CIO um, was the main conduit of American money um, prior to 1983, and remained the major conduit. But their money was pretty much drying up, right? They had gotten Mm -hmm. money through dues, um, American dues, and so the NED brings in three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars a year that can now go through the um, what's now known as the Solidarity Center, which is which was the Free Trade Union Institute one of the four main um, sister organizations of the National Endowment for Democracy, Um, including the International Republican Institute, the National Democratic Institute, and um, the uh, Chamber of Commerce's um, Enterprise Institute. In Poland, most of the money goes through the AFL-CIO, so they get a huge pot of money, but you also see smaller groups that had existed um, after the imposition of martial law, uh, particularly the Committee in Support of Solidarity, um, which becomes the Institute for Democracy in Eastern Europe uh, as well as other groups in Western Europe uh, focused on artistic endeavors, intellectual endeavors beginning to get into this big pot of money. So what the NED does is – is, and Congress through NED is, is provides a much larger source of funding for the opposition than it existed before. Um, I mean it's still minuscule compared to what you spend on – defense in the 1980s. You know, it's – I make a broader argument about sort of the cost effectiveness, I think, of this funding, which is which is quite good. Um, over – you know, I, I my accounting is that over the course of 1984 basically to 1989, it's a little under $10 million of NAD funding that go to Poland, um, which I think are $10 million very well spent. There is the big question of whether the CIA – how much money the CIA spent and what conduits it did spend it through. Um I tend to think that, that the secretive but slightly more open NED channels were just as important, uh if not more important than what the CIA did. But we won't know until until the Center for Security uh Studies um declassifies some of that information and gets that out. I know people are interested in having it out there and so I'd like to see it. Um but it's at this point it's not clear what in addition to NED money made it into Poland. Um it is clear that there are you know West European sources. Uh, the French trade unions, which are not getting a lot of good press right now, uh, <laughs> but in 1980-81, in they gave a huge amount of money that really kept uh, the international organization, um, the, the coordinating office abroad in Brussels, the solidarity office abroad in Brussels. Uh, the French trade unions really were able to give something like 8 million francs, which is like a million dollars uh, in the first year. And so most of the money in the beginning came from not the United States. Um after eighty three, eighty four when NED steps in, it's I think it is more centered on the United States. And then there's a you know, there's a ton of people-to-people stuff, right? I mean, people are sending cash, American dollars, to their their uncle and their babcha, their grandmother in Poland, right? Um there are all of these small humanitarian groups that are sending money over. And that money may make it into the opposition, it may be used on the black market, um, but it but it helps people's lives. Be a little easier during martial law and afterwards
0: Yeah, it's, it's an important point because one of the things you do especially in your conclusion is talk about soft power and improving the image of the United States this humanitarian aid and the, the cost effectiveness of it but what's also interesting about the NED stuff is it reinforces the point that a lot of this was done by the polls themselves to bring if you want to use the term bring themselves freedom like the NED didn't have a lot of oversight over how its money was spent. It was a lot based on faith that people, or trust, maybe a better way of putting it, would do things that uh, were appropriate to promoting democracy. So that's where I, I kind of tied it in with the issue of trust. There's a lot of trust going Absolutely. on Absolutely,
1: there. There's a lot of trust in it, and I think that's, I mean, it's really an essential argument of my book, is that when you're talking about it, you know, um, triumphalism, uh, which is kind of dying as a as a popular uh, as a popular yeah. narrative now, I think it, I think in the in the conventional wisdom it's still there, but among academics it's pretty much dead. Um, there's a very important point there that that there's not a lot of American leadership that comes with this money. It's very important to understand that the way it makes NED gets congressional funding. NED then decides, all right, we're going to give three hundred thousand dollars a year to the Free Trade Union Institute, who's going to give it to the Solidarity Coordinating Office Abroad, who is then going to use their own smugglers and their own, um, their own staff to decide what printing presses, what ink, what um, recording devices, what uh, telecommunications devices we're going to send then into Poland um, and how it's going to get in. There's even, you know, sketchier stuff, not sketchy, I don't mean that in terms of uh, questionable but uh, less clear in terms of how it's making its way in, the Institute for Democracy in Eastern Europe. They get money to support underground publishing. So the money goes to Arena Lasota and Jakub Karpinski in Paris. They then basically send in $500 increments all of this money to people they know working in the underground. That can be done through hand-to-hand, you know, friends of friends coming to the West and bringing the money back. Occasionally, they would send you know, recording devices so that they could report what was happening better. Um, but all of this is done, like you said, on faith, which is really important. It's, it's all Poles, recent Polish emigres um, or really Polish-Americans back in the United States who are taking care of how this money gets to Poland and who it goes to. But there really is no decision by the Americans that this must be used for whatever kind of publication or for yeah. to promote this particular policy, right? There's, I think there's a, I don't write this in the book, but there's like a guilt, right? That we can't do more in Eastern Europe, right? That these folks who are our cousins and our grandparents, um, there's a huge Polish diaspora in the United States, right? So there's this sense that we need to do more, but in a nuclear world, you're not gonna use troops. And so you've gotta find these other ways and so, $500,000 a year going to Poland is nothing in congressional money, and so there's no need for it to be determined exactly how it's going to be used. It's good faith money, saying these are good people, yeah. we know who these good people are, um, and we're supporting what they're doing, and the polls took it very seriously. There's There have been allegations from time to time that that people took this money and you put it to personal use. but. I mean, $500,000 a year isn't really that much, and certainly some people profited from underground publications um, and made a living doing it, but generally, the polls were very honest um, and, and used the money as it was deemed to be used, and they came up even, I explain this in the book, with this sort of bizarre receipt system where they have sort of code words listed in each of their um, weekly newsletters that they're publishing, you know, Vuyek Five dollars, uh, Anya, which means that five hundred or five thousand dollars came in from Institute for Democracy of Eastern Europe and made its way to Arena Leso- uh, Sorry, um, Helena Wuchivo's publication, uh, Gazeta. Um, sorry, um, Tgodynik um Right, so they have this little system of covertly and secretively saying, "We got your money. We're using it. Thank you." Right, so the polls take it very seriously. The Americans are willing to just bet this money that it'll be useful, right? Um, I think it's very important to remember that nobody thought this would work, right? <laughs> like there is no sense, even when you're reading this sort of, the most neoconservative of the NSC documents, they're talking about this taking a generation. They're not talking about this happening in 10 years. They're not even talking, you know, it's much longer than that. Um, and there's no sense that this is gonna work. And so it's just on faith that, You're giving this money away, and you're saying this is – these are the right people to support. We have a moral obligation to support these people, and that's what we should be doing. Um, And I think that's where the money comes from, and there isn't some sense of we need to tell them what to do with the money, but just we need to give them money to keep doing what they're doing.
0: Yeah, and you you developed that argument very well. And it also – what you've just said raises the issue of how it does work or how the U.S. empowers revolution – and the, and the first, the first step, uh, I think, to getting there would be the issue of Polish reform, that if you want to pick a date of when Polish reform really begins to gather steam, uh, just, just for the purposes of our interview, September 1986 sure. with the amnesty issue, and then from there into the roundtable talks and eventually the, the rise of a solidarity government. And I guess the point is, what was going on in the minds of the Polish government when they began this reform process really beginning in 1986?
1: Well, I would – so I think the reform process begins December 13th, 1981. They – and his advisors recognize that the system is broken, Um, and so they try economic reform first, and without Western support, economic reform is not going to happen, and they recognize that they're not going to get enough support from the Soviets. They're not going to get enough support from Comic-Con, from the other East European countries, and so – By 1986, they've recognized that they need Western economic aid and money to start flowing again. And the reason you have that amnesty in 1986 is that all of the West European countries, uh, all the main Western European countries and the Americans have all said, we are not going to give you new economic aid unless you start respecting human rights of these activists. And that's why you have this final amnesty. But there's a series of amnesties before that. Yeah. Where the Polish government is trying to sort of balance their desires for control against their desire for legitimacy with the with their own public, um, but the final one in 1986, and it's final because no one is interned for long periods of time after that. People are still rounded up occasionally and held for 48 hours or maybe a couple of weeks or charged officially, but not these sort of vague internments that had existed, and really. What you're seeing in 1986 in terms of the acceleration of the political reform is um, the greater flexibility the Poles have to pursue their own solutions because Gorbachev is in power in the Soviet Union, right? It's not – Gorbachev doesn't tell the Poles what to do, but he does say it's okay what you're doing. You can go faster. And the two of Yerzelski and Gorbachev really are a simpatico in this, and, and they have –… a close relationship that I wish I could have explored more in, in the book. I didn't uh, have access to Russian sources, and so I didn't do a very good job with that. But it's very clear that that the Soviets – Gorbachev trusted Yaroslavsky and saw as uh, – uh, sorry, as uh, Chernyaev, um, one of Gorbachev's close foreign policy advisors, said he saw Poland as a laboratory for political change and political reform in yeah. the Soviet Union. Um, and so the acceleration and the sort of the increase of a willingness to accept an act of opposition after 1986 um, is a reflection of Gorbachev's willingness to do that in his own country and his statements that, yes, you can do it. You can, you can have a different political system in your own country. Right? Uh, the predecessors had not allowed that kind of change from the Kremlin. But Gorbachev was, and I think that's why you see the acceleration in 85, 86 um, of a willingness to allow greater political plural. It's not really pluralism, but it's a step towards pluralism and, and, and a vocal opposition in 1986
0: um, in Poland. Yeah, and you, you talk a lot about the Reagan administration and the Bush administration's response as well as congressional support, sure. the, the various uh, – Things that Congress did, uh, we also talk about the Allied response as well, how allied pressure really factored into poland 's decision, but I guess at the end of the day when, when, when we look at how how these changes changes happen, would you say how would you evaluate the the behavior of the Americans during this time period
1: so um in what in, after eighty six or yeah from
0: eighty six from eighty six to eighty nine roughly I'm just gotcha. It seems like the there's a lot of pragmatic response yes. to Polish behavior. Yeah,
1: so um so eighty six eighty six to eighty nine um, Reagan is definitely focused on the Soviets. Right, there's very little presidential concern with what's happening in Poland in that period. Um, even even Schultz is much more focused on this U.S. Soviet bilateral relationship. And so Whitehead um, and uh, uh, Simons, Thomas Simons at the Department of State and and Davis really start to have more of a free hand. Um, And what we're doing is now that the polls are actually moving towards the American goals, which were always to end martial law, which they did um, in 1983, um, to release political prisoners, which they did – finally then in that September 1986 um, amnesty and then begin a dialogue again with the legitimate representatives of the people, Um, we're really – the Americans are really pushing for that last one now right? because you've got the first two taken care of, and now you're looking for some kind of conversation. And so the Americans start lifting their sanctions. They start saying, all right, you've done what you said you would do. Um, We're now going to make it easier on you. Unfortunately for the polls – the money doesn't start flowing in, right? These sanctions on yeah. on fishing rights that have been left a little earlier, or on um, I mean, the Americans no longer will veto IMF membership for the polls, but that doesn't mean that the next day they get IMF bridging loans, right? Um, it's a longer process, and and unfortunately for the for the PZPR, the economy is in such a bad shape that they don't get enough of a Western response, uh, an immediate response of any kind really, and so they're, they're hit with a, a new wave of strikes in 1988, right, which precipitates mm-hmm. the political crisis that leads to the roundtable discussions in 1989. So the Americans in from 86 onward are now saying it's time for the carrot basically. They've gone from using the stick um, and using the stick lighter and lighter as they went along. After February of 1987 when the Americans have lifted all their sanctions, the question is now how are we going to get this American money? I think Jaruzelski and his advisors want it to come pretty quickly, but the Americans don't pursue that kind of speed. Um, even by 1989, after you have the roundtable agreement made, but you know, while it's unclear what the government's going to look like in Poland, the the economic response is really pretty tepid. It, it heats up very quickly and it expands greatly after you have the creation of the the Solidarity-led government in uh, August September 1989, but prior to that. The money does not flow in very quickly, Um, and the new loans uh, and the forgiveness of debt um, really doesn't come into effect until late 89, early 1990. Um, So the Americans are now dangling the carrot, but they're not – Gierzeltski and and the rest of the poles aren't able to grab that carrot quickly, um, which leads to these sort of internal processes continuing to dominate what's driving political change in Poland.
0: Yeah, we can't do justice, given the time constraints we have, to these to the chapters that deal with this. But what struck me is how a lot of people were disappointed, although I think it's understandable, how there wasn't a Marshall Plan for yeah. Poland, and America was going to come in with all this money. And then you get the complexities of like the Bush administration supporting the Polish government, the same Polish government, in essence, that instituted martial Law, because they feared that uh, as you talk about all the various nationalist and, and more radical reformers wanted to basically kick communism out tomorrow, and that might uh, endanger the progress of slow, moderate reform. That would be a better way to transition to democracy. That that Bush administration uh, realism, that fear of disorder. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't know where where I mean, what did you after you you wrote your book? How did you evaluate? Uh, I mean, you write in the book, but for our for our listeners. What's your uh, opinion of the Bush administration's handling of, of the Poland of the
1: Polish issue? Well, um, um, I a lot of people read my article, um, which was uh, which is sort of in the final chapter of the book. There was an article I put out in the Journal of Cold War Studies a while ago um, mm-hmm. about this eighty nine period, and in it I argue that that Bush pursued an evolutionary change in Poland, and that the United States was not trying to accelerate what was happening. But rather trying to calm it down and make sure that it was lasting, slower change. Um, a lot of other people, Mary Serrati, uh, Jeff Engel, have have also taken that perspective on on Bush, and I think I think that's where the scholarship is now. Um, it was never meant as a criticism. Um, I think Bush played it pretty damn well. I mean, what else do you want to have happen than a solidarity led government in Poland, right? I think it's – what happens in Poland is slower and more methodical than what happens in East Germany or what happens in Czechoslovakia or, God forbid, what happens in, in Romania, right?
0: Um, mm-hmm. The
1: Americans played it really well in that if there had been, I think, a huge break, some kind of catastrophic event like you have in Romania in Poland in, in August of 1989… Then the hardliners, you know, the Husaks and the um, and the Ceausescus would have shot a lot more people than they did right away. Um, so I think Bush played it really well. But it's it's also a it it also leads to that understanding that that what's driving this is internal processes. It's not the American government that's driving the political change in Eastern Europe. Really, by 1989. We are sitting back and trying to control the pace of it and to slow things down and can t- keep it evolutionary so it doesn't explode. I mean George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, excuse me, um, <laughs> 41, um, plays it right. I mean it works out really well. There are certainly other things that could have been done. Um, I do think that the American economic response to what happened in Poland was, was far too limited, and that led to real deprivation for Poles. Um, they got through it, but, um, the American money started flowing later, which was good. And the Western money started flowing later. It was never enough and it would never be enough. Um, but it's a very positive outcome for the United States. There's no way to look at what happens in 1989 and say, shit, that could have gone better. Right. (laughs) I mean, it really, it is, it is, it goes really well. Um, and so the purpose of my writing is not to. Not to criticize, but just to understand actually what was driving it because I think it's very dangerous to say that the Americans did this. Right? The Americans are accelerating pace. It, without the Americans, the communists would still be there. That's. It's actually because the Americans that the communists are there after 1989, um, and so I think that's an important understanding to have. I do think things worked out really well, right? I mean you have – Poland is now uh, – an important part of the of the European of the European Union and and a strong economy. It took twenty years to get there, but but with how things turned out, it turned out very well. And I think Bush played his cards and his caution um was strong, but his caution was was productive.
0: For sure. Yeah, I didn't I didn't read your book it's being overtly critical of Bush. I think it was very measured analysis, in fact. Uh, I can see though I mean, this is just my view of things. I, I see a lot of people who mistake, uh, for lack of a better term, when you emphasize the realism of somebody that you're somehow denigrating them, that they should be more that they should be more into values and more uh, upfront. Like I, I had a bunch of students in my undergrad class who were just shocked at when we go over some of the political strategies that Lincoln used to get laws passed and deal with the issue of slavery that weren't, you know, I'm not comparing the two, but, you know, politics and what's done in the real world is different from what you can imagine in your mind of, like, just defending ideals and getting things done. Things have to be done in the real world. So I think I think that's an important point that you make. Thank you. And another another important point of the book is that you remind people, and I, I think people still need reminding, that Poland was not just Lech Wałęsa in solidarity, that he had opponents. There were other groups fighting for power that it wasn't just some foreordained struggle or foreordained thing that things would turn out as they did. And why I mentioned this is because you make a very important point. I was wondering if you'd say a little bit more about it, about the the impact of humanitarian aid and how that encouraged moderate voices within the opposition in Poland. Um, um,
1: this is something this that – that, that- it, it was a real difference between my dissertation and the final book. Um, it was after I finished the dissertation that I really began to appreciate how contentious the the underground was within Poland and that there really were other important voices there who could have taken the lead. And that in the West, we saw solidarity, solidarity meant the opposition and Valenza meant the opposition, right? He spoke for everybody. That's how we saw yeah. it in the West. He was the one face that, that if you grew up in the 1980s, you could probably recognize. But within the opposition, the much broader opposition than just the Solidarity Trade Union itself, um, there were a lot of dissenting voices and a lot of new groups that came up that are fascinating. Orange Alternative, which Patrick Kenny has written about, uh, is just this bizarre, wonderful, countercultural carnival. Um, yeah but it is an opposition movement and it it garners a lot of support from from the youth that Valencia doesn't have as much by the end of the 80s that he had in early in the 80s there are much more militant groups uh than than what the solidarity middle moderates want uh, and there are much more leftist sort of pro trade union members of the opposition that, that feel like Valenza has, has given up on the roots of solidarity and that the opposition has gone in a different way. And this includes Anna Valentinovich, who was as essential in the creation of the Solidarity Trade Union movement, uh, Solidarity Trade Union, as as Valenza was, right? So um, there's a lot more um, differentiation within the opposition than I recognized when I was first writing this. Uh, and that gets me to I think the most important finding of the book is that who we give money to and how we decide to give it to them within the opposition can affect those internal discussions. right? There are obviously always sort of different wings within an opposition movement, but by giving most of the money to those moderates uh, surrounded, surrounding, Valenza, those folks who met regularly with the embassy. Uh, and those folks who were advising for one with the from Warsaw or from Wrocław or from Gdansk, um, these are the people that got the money. And so their oppositional activity was much more prevalent and much easier to produce. Um, and so they were able to remain a dominant voice within um, within the within the broader opposition. Um, it's as I say in the book, it's very hard to come up with a counterfactual where Lech Wałęsa isn't an important guy, he is, you know, he is elected chairman, but not by a huge measure of of the trade union, right? He had opposition within the trade union. He certainly has it in 1988, 1989. Um, but where the Americans had the most effect in shaping what happens in Poland is by making sure, or helping to ensure that those moderates got the resources they needed, so that they could keep. A prevalent voice in the opposition, right? So that those folks who are negotiating the round table um, are the moderates at the table rather than um, either further left or, or further conservative than, than Valencia
0: himself. Yeah, it's, 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 it's done very well. And what it made, what it would make me think of, and this kind of touches on some of the research I've been doing, but it It really drives home the point that you to understand events of the magnitude, especially like the 1989 revolutions, is to look at local events, local agency and to not just, you know, you can't explain it as a function of what the Soviet Union did or the Americans did or transnational networks. So transnational history is still important, but it's I think people are moving back to more focusing, making sure you have a good local context and understanding. So for, for why I'm getting to this is at the end of the day, if someone asks you, you're sitting at a, at a coffee party and someone says, you wrote this book and how did the U.S. empower revolution? What is the short answer that you can give them about the U.S. role in the in the fall of, of the rise of democracy in Poland and by extension, maybe the 1989 revolution?
1: So I think, so I think the Americans were important cheerleaders, right? Um, one of the things Reagan did really well is voice a lot of the frustrations that everybody living under communism had. Right, They all knew communi- communism was evil in Poland, but to hear the American president say communism is evil um, was this, I think, a cathartic thing. So in Poland, um, if you ask somebody who ended the Cold War, they're going to tell you Pope John Paul or Ronald Reagan. Right, They're not going to say Lech okay. Um And so the American triumphalism is very popular in Poland as well. Um, but for me, what the Americans did was we acted as cheerleaders. We gave voice um, and all of that sort of psychological support for all of the suffering the Poles were doing, right? It, it helps if you hear an RFE, um, a Raider for Europe broadcast of a speech by Reagan talking about a desire for democracy in Eastern Europe, right? You're like, yes, we're doing the right things. These are all good, right? And, and humanitarian yeah. aid had a lot to do with that, right? Humanitarian aid was a way of saying we are with you. In the West, we are with you in Poland, right? We support what you're doing. We're going to help you get dresses for your wedding we're going to send some milk and some uh baby products so that your kids aren't hungry and they have as many diapers as they need um that kind of psychological support is really important um and then i think we gave money to the right people right we chose good people to support um in the polish case it was very easy to figure out who that should be they were prominent members of the opposition um but but we in the United States found a core of moderates who could lead Poland through their political transformation and we supported them. And that includes you know, supporting the reformers with Jaruzelski in 1989. I think that was the right choice. Um, and so it's the way that we empower that revolution is through the sort of broad rhetorical support, but also then getting the money into the hands of the people we most agree with And who I think had had the best shot at bringing a stable transformation into Poland.
0: Good answer, and I have to raise this point. I'm I'm sorry for taking so much of your time. I really, I've really really enjoyed talking with you. You don't address this issue. uh, I mean, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You don't go out of your way to address this issue in the book. But from what I from what I read. You're definitely moving the pendulum back a little bit from the impact of the Helsinki effect, as we call it among diplomatic historians. That the Helsinki Accords, especially books by people like Daniel Thomas and Sarah Snyder and other people uh, that have, have argued about the impact of the Helsinki Accords. And you seem to, if I'm reading you correctly, emphasize that it was not perhaps as important as some people think it was. Or am I reading too much into that?
1: Well, I. Well- I think I, I disagree more with powers, and uh, Sarah Snyder is a close friend and, and has certainly influenced my views on all of this. Um, I think that when you take the 30,000-foot view, um, you see the, the prominence of the Helsinki Accords. But when you're looking at it locally, you see that groups like the committee, uh, Workers' Defense Committee Corps in Poland – These things come about because of domestic situations, not because of some kind of international event um, Mm -hmm. or some kind of an international signal. What I think the Helsinki network did that was so important was really to raise Western consciousness of all of these abuses and who these people were in Eastern Europe doing what they were doing. So, right, to have all you would not have had congressional support for the national endowment for democracy to support what was happening in Poland without the Helsinki and the CSCE committee in Congress, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think the aspects of the Helsinki network that, that promote um, understanding of what's happening behind the, behind the iron curtain um, are really essential to get the kind of political will to then push for these changes, right? And if, so if you have somebody like Nixon in office in the 1980s as opposed to Reagan, he's probably Nixon will probably and Kissinger will basically start sending money back to the polls much earlier and not expect those human rights changes, that that final amnesty to come to fruition. Right? So it is important mm-hmm. in terms of having human rights be a core issue in the West and an expectation in the West before Relationships can be normalized and before the Poles can have access to Western resources again. And that's true across Western Europe. It's not just in the United States. This is – this the the British, who I use some of their documents, um, but, but the French and the Italians as well um, are very much focused on human rights concerns um, before they will normalize relationships fully with Poland. So I don't see – I don't see the Helsinki – Accords creating some kind of groundswell in Eastern Europe itself, but I do think it's very important for promoting East European perspectives and for showing the injustice of what's going on in these countries, and to be- bring greater Western uh, support and gravitas and money to this cause. And I think that's why it's that's why it's most important.
0: Yeah, I, I can see that argument. That's, those, you raise an interesting point. That counterfactual is interesting too. But the arguments I think can be seen as complementary. Sure. The, way, the, way sure. the way you put it there I, I think is is well done and uh, interesting. Yeah, I would
1: certainly yeah. see myself as complementary to Sarah Snyder's work. Um, there's not a lot we disagree on. Um, I think that the kind of the boomerang effect I'm less – the boomerang effect of powers and others I'm, I'm less convinced by. Um Sure. Because as I try to show in the book, right, the, the moral leadership is really coming from Eastern Europe. I mean these are the folks who are suffering through it. When Americans go uh, – when Whitehead goes and visits with Vuenza, it's not like Valencia is really excited to meet with a deputy assistant secretary of state, right? <laughs> it's that Whitehead has all of this solidarity propaganda in his office, um, and he – and, he, and is the hero to him, right? It's the same thing when George Bush goes. Um, everybody's happy to see a vice president. Um, when George Bush goes in 1987, right, it's a big deal for a vice president to visit your country and go hang out with the biggest opposition figure in the country. But again, even for Bush, it's about meeting these heroes, these Polish heroes. And so when, I think the, the causality that I'm looking at is more east to west than the other way around um, in terms of the the effects of human rights discourse
0: yeah and it's it's interesting because if you read i mean you have read. i don't even know why i'm saying it like that but a lot of times when 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 reagan and others talked about dissidents, or they went in in, during moscow or other other parts of it they always went out of their way to say how they were inspired by people who were taking the you know the repression on the ground yeah like george schultz's uh, autobiography talks about you know, he just could not get over the strength and fortitude of the refuseniks he yeah. worked on behalf of in the Soviet Union. Like these little, I mean, I think it's uh, Ida Nudal. I think, is one of them he talked about in particular. Just this little frail old Jewish woman facing down the Soviet state just inspired him to keep going. So I think that is an important point to keep in mind that, that comes through in your book. But um, but anyways, it's not to belabor the point. I've taken up tons of your time today. And I, I, I thank you for speaking with me. But before we go, I was wondering if you could just tell the listeners what research plans you might have for the future.
1: Yeah, uh, thank, you. So, um, thank you. So part of one of my uh, – one of the outcomes of this book was a recognition that the connections between the United States and the what I might call the opposition networks um, in Poland didn't start in 1980. They go back to the beginning of the Cold War. And so I've kind of become fascinated because of some things Davis told to me um, and because of some vague literature out there about the effects of uh, East-West academic and professional exchanges between the United States and Eastern Europe. Um, and so what I'm doing now is is studying those exchanges, things like uh, the Fulbright exchange, of course, okay. but also uh, private foundations. The Ford Foundation had um, a significant Exchange program with Poland and Czechoslovakia, uh, Czechoslovakia and Hungary. I'm looking at all three countries now. I'm sort of expanding geographically, um, and what I'm trying to do is create kind of a, an intellectual history of these exchanges and look for ways that these exchanges may have promoted that those moderate views that I see coming to the coming to the fore in 1989. And so the the vague hypothesis of the current study is that by bringing both Communist Party members and um, East European intellectuals to the United States and sending Americans there, um, it created a a view of the West um, and created an understanding of how – a moderate view of how their societies could be transformed. Uh, And so what I'm looking for is direct and indirect connections between members of those roundtable negotiations which occurred in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Poland with these exchange programs Um, and trying to understand through traditional historical writing um, how the programs changed over time, what people's experiences were like on these programs, um, and to make a connection with with the political events of 1989, 1990 in those three countries. I'm also kind of branching out into an interdisciplinary aspect of using – creating a database of all of the the participants and all of the members of the roundtable talks in the three countries. Uh, So the participants of the exchanges and all of the folks that took part in the roundtables in Hungary, Poland, and Czechoslovakia and using social network analysis to then see if there's a quantifiable way – to show that these exchanges had some kind of effect um, on the political decisions in in Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia. There's lots of anecdotal information out there um, about like Bronisław Geremek who is a key member of the opposition uh, in Poland went to and worked at uh, the Woodrow Wilson Center uh, in 77-78 and he really was slightly political before that but after his time in the United States was Um, very much driven to change his country. Uh, Another key reformer on the communist side of things, uh, Mieczysław Rakowski, who was one of Jaruzelski's close advisors and the final um, general secretary of the Communist Party in Poland, he had come to the United States multiple times on these six or eight or longer week visits um, as a journalist. And so he had a very good understanding of what the West looked like and what the United States looked like. And so my hypothesis is that that the exposure to these Western ideas created a, a moderate core in both the opposition and in the um, and in the communist powers that that could come to this moderate decision making process that we see in 1989. Whether that's actually the case or not, I don't know. Um, I'm very much still in the weeds. I'm still bu- building the the social network analysis database. Um, it is a Chronologically, a much longer study than I've ever done before. So there's a lot more moving pieces, um, but my process is the same. I'm sort of finding new angles and new archives that I need to go to. Um, hopefully, it won't take me another 15 years, but um, but uh, that's the direction I'm moving in now.
0: It sounds fascinating. I, I'm also interested in those types of questions, things that you know, ideas about something that are hard to quantify. Yeah. Which make which make realists and polyscientists scientists very nervous. <laughs> I know.
1: Well, one of my reasons for for wanting to do this new project is uh, I spent a year on a, as a postdoc after I finished my PhD at George Washington, and um, I was surround. I was the only historian who's ever had that particular postdoc, um, and I was very much in the minority. Um, and uh, Steve Krasner came and listened to my talk on um, on uh, on Poland and and my refined ideas on empowering revolution. And he's a structuralist. He's a political scientist. He looks at nuclear issues primarily is what he's known for. Um, mm-hmm. And he sort of looked at me and said, $10 million matters. I don't believe it. Right. Because I'm not <laughs> because I'm not because I'm making a I'm making an argument that focuses on people and focuses on anecdotes. Um, it's not the the sort of the quantitative side of political science doesn't. Like those arguments, there are plenty of political scientists who do like my arguments and do like the approach. Um, but there's a real divide in political scientists. Yeah. So I'm one of the reasons I want to try this quantifiable social network analysis is to see if I can get those people in the policy world to think differently as well. Um, I've always written. I mean, I, I went to. I've been fascinated from, with politics from the beginning. Uh, and I've I've written um, I you know I went to I went to grad school in Washington D.C. and so I've written something that I wanted policymakers to read. I don't know that they are, um, but I think I always think about not only the past but using information about the past for the present. Uh, and so I hope that that some of my audience is is thinking about how we might be better promoting uh, pluralism and uh, trans political transformation in places like the Middle East right now. Um and how a return to really concern about human rights uh, might turn the tide of autocracy that we're seeing right now.
0: Yeah, interesting. And you, you raised a fundamental point. I'll, I'll let you go, I promise. But I did an interview with a guy named John Bew who wrote a book called Realpolitik. And one of the suggestions he had about his book was how much policymakers, you, you raised the issue right now, how much policymakers would benefit by putting down specialized international relations theory studies and reading the literature about a country to get a feel, to get a feel for how the people act and think would be so much beneficial, but no one does it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just imploring people to read poetry would, would would help them a lot more because people don't think like rational machines all the time. Absolutely.
1: I mean, my wife, my wife translates uh, Polish poetry into English and um, that, a cultural awareness of this place um, makes a lot of sense. One of the best things you can read to understand the Polish opposition in the 1980s is um, Tadeusz Konwicki, um, who has uh, two books, The Minor Apocalypse and The Polish Complex, which are written in the late 70s and early 80s and are absolutely fantastic to understand what the mindset of Poles was like then. Um, and so I think that area studies approach, which I've definitely taken, um, is is essential to the kind of in-depth... Real nitty gritty understanding of the strains of causality that that lead to these outcomes, whether or not they're related to what the Americans were actually up
0: to. (laughs) True. Uh, I've taken enough of your time, Greg. I want to once again thank you for speaking with me about your book. Uh, For our listeners out there, this is a very readable book that will have a lot of good information for the general reader. It will work well. In undergraduate classrooms, it's a very, very appealing book. If you're teaching graduate seminars on the Cold War or U.S. foreign policy in general, and once again, Greg, uh, best of luck, and um, perhaps we'll meet down the line here in the near future.
1: Thank you very much, and I'll just uh, make one little plug that the uh, the paperback version of the book should be available at the end of this month. So if you're going to use it in your classes, it's uh, it's less expensive now. It's also available electronically, so it's it's. I think it's a good choice for upper level undergrads and graduate students, for sure. Thank you very much for all, all the time you spent uh, interviewing me.
0: It's my pleasure. Take care.